What I Believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Grayling is a humanist philosopher, master of the New College of the Humanities in London, and a supernumerary fellow of St Anne's College, Oxford. He's written and edited over 30 books on philosophy and other subjects, and is a frequent contributor to the Literary Review, Observer, Independent on Sunday, Times Literary Supplement, New Statesman, and many other publications. He is an equally frequent broadcaster on BBC Radio's 4, 3, and the World Service. Most importantly, he's a Vice President of Humanists UK. Anthony, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. Real pleasure, Andrew. Now, lots of people that we've spoken to on this podcast have been speaking about their own beliefs and values, sometimes for the first time, and you can almost hear them forming their opinions and thoughts as they're expressing them. But of course, that's not going to be the case for you because you are a humanist philosopher, well used to uh, examining their own beliefs and values from all different sorts of angles, as well as the beliefs and values of others. So I guess we can start with a a very open-ended question for you. When you look at your life and what motivates you, what are the main beliefs and values that are guiding you that you can identify? They stem really from um, this uh, drive that, that, uh, that I feel to, to try to make sense of things, to try to understand things. I'm really curious um, about, the, about everything really, about science and history and the world, politics, society, people, psychology, all that stuff, all just seems so fascinating to me and it all connects up anyway. Um, the one true thing it says in the Old Testament is that the ankle bone is connected to the knee bone and this is true of pretty well anything in life. Uh, and so right from a very early age, really from the time I was a, a kid, um, the huge relish that I've always taken in wanting to find out and wanting to know has been a big driver, as I say. And it feeds into this question of value because the value of knowledge, of making sense, of finding out, and the the values of inquiry, that is, of uh, matching what one thinks and believes to the evidence that one has for it, uh, examining arguments, listening to what other people have to say, scrutinizing them, bringing a kind of healthy scepticism to bear. All these things are you know, part, part of the epistemic values, but they're also part of the values of life. And I remember um, reading something uh, many years ago, indeed, perhaps when I was uh, still at school, one of the essays of Plutarch, uh, his essay, The Dinner of the Seven Wise Men. So it wasn't always just men in those days, wasn't it? But the women were doing something more important. But the essay begins with uh, two of the sages on their way to this dinner party, and one says to the other, well, we know what uh, the host's duty is. He's got to provide the food, the entertainment, the wine. But what is a, a guest's duty? And the other one says, a guest's duty is to be a good conversationalist. And that means that, that he must be well-informed, 
knowledgeable. He must have, you know, thought about his views. He must be able to put them, articulate them. But he must also be a very good listener. He must really listen and he really hear what, what other people say so that he can draw them out, engage with them, debate them, challenge them if necessary. But, you know, so many of the world's problems arise from not really hearing what other people say, but only thinking you do. This is certainly the source of pretty well all domestic difficulties in life. And so to be a, a good conversationalist is also to be attentive, uh, attentive and, and um, curious. And if you match the two things together, pushing the responsibility to be well-informed together with the responsibility to be open and, and inquiring, you see what it is not just to be a good conversationist at dinner party, but what it is to be a good citizen of the world. And that's that's how if we're, we're all like that. And you find very quickly when, when you try to do that, that the great diversity there is in um, among human beings uh, and the great sort of variety of, of human nature that there is, that there are very, very few people, even uh, people whom you immediately take a dislike to because you think their political views are so different from yours or you know things that they've done are, are things that you find unacceptable but you scratch away and you will almost always find something of interest i mean there are very 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 few people who don't have a some passion in life or some you know sort of intelligent interest in whatever it is model railways you know <laughs> uh, politics no matter what it is if you get people on their home turf in that way you can find that there is a lot of richness and depth in in humanity so, so it, all, it all connects up in a sense the desire to know to make sense to um you know stand on on a on a, on, on a mountaintop so you can see the view across time and space and human inquiry uh, and what it teaches you about this great variety in the world. I mean, all these things link up together and, as a result, constitute one set of values. It sounds to me that, I mean, you know, some people talk about the meaning of life as if it's something out there, you know, and they're assessing their success in life in accordance with how far they've attained that, you know, uh, or, or not. But for everything you've just said seems to, it makes me think that you care more about a sort of a good life, a life well lived, and you're sort of talking about the ingredients for you of what that good life might be. Look, looking at it from from outside, almost as it were. Well, it's, it's interesting you say that actually, because there is a significant distinction between the idea of a life that feels good to live, a life worth living, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the question of seeking meaning in life, because in in some cases the search for meaning um, is uh, could be painful, could be difficult, and therefore the life may not feel particularly good to live, but you're doing something which you think is going to be very productive. Of course, a, a, a life which is um, as, which is successful in the quest for meaning will turn out to have been a life worth living, even if it wasn't also a life that felt good to live. So, you know, one, one does have to tease all these things apart. But here is, the I, I think, the really significant point about this and why I think... Although most people in the world are content with, and, you know, justifiably so, with having a life that's worth living, even if they don't think that they are in quest of some great meaning or creating some great meaning in life. For, for, for me, the, the idea of discovering something that, that is of true and lasting value, that quest is what uh, constitutes the sort of quest for meaning, in, in my view. And this business of, of making sense of finding out 
is in, indeed what, what makes existence, my existence, meaningful for me. Here I'm thinking of what Schopenhauer said, that if you're going to want to continue living, may remember Schopenhauer was a terrible pessimist, okay? If you're going to want to keep on living, then existence had better be better than non-existence. In, in my view, um, trying to understand things and, and find things out and to put together a conspectus view of what this world is and what we are in it is a very, very meaningful quest. It's what generates uh, meaning in the lives of scientists and historians and, and philosophers and writers and everybody who is trying to articulate some vision, some view of things, trying to find what contribution they can make to the overall picture of things. As I say, I think you know, m m most people may not be you know, driven to do that kind of thing, but nevertheless, uh, they may feel that planting a garden, looking after a family, having a relative success in their careers and, and so on, has made life worthwhile, providing that it hasn't been one in which the balance of, of sorrow, of grief, of loss, of disappointment outweighs the good things. And, and that's absolutely fine. You know, people don't have to be urgently striving for the, the heights in order to have a life that's worthwhile. Although personally, uh, there always seems to me that the fact that there is something more that there is something that one really could reach for and that's worth reaching for itself, even if you don't get hold of it, but in itself makes your, your life something that does have uh, that additional element, the element of meaning. Is that something that you think you've um, been in the grip of in your own life, needing to reach for the next thing? Yeah, yeah, the, the, the reaching. Yeah, yeah, the reaching. Uh, I don't know about the success. The grasping part, but the reaching part, certainly. <laughs> Why has that been important for you? You know, in part, uh, it might be a temperamental thing. Uh, in, in part, it, it might be that uh, when you look at the examples set by people who have made an effort and who have achieved something, it's a remarkable fact that we remember the poets much more than we do the generals. <laughs> it's a very heartening fact about about human history. Yes. Isn't it? Uh, and uh, to, to want to be able to do something that is a, a putting in place of another piece of the jigsaw puzzle to contribute something, to be part of the conversation, really, because all inquiry uh, over time has constituted a sort of great conversation that humankind has with itself about what matters and about what this world is. Try to understand the, the ultimate nature of reality, how we know it, how we can justify our claims to know it, Understanding something about the major impulses that have driven human history and which drive human individuals. Understanding the place in our lives of things like our, uh, our intimacies, our friendships, our uh, participation in community. All, all, all these things constitute a sort of great, you know, great uh, tumult of, of, of things that need to be found out about and, and discussed and understood. So to contribute something to that seems really worthwhile. And if one could do that, if one felt that, that one had really put that piece of the jigsaw puzzle into the mix, then that would be really something. Hi, this is Andrew, appearing halfway through the podcast to remind you that this is a podcast from Humanist UK, the national charity working on behalf of non-religious people to advance free thinking and promote a tolerant society. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, 
please consider giving us your support or joining as a member. You talk about discovery and inquiry and finding things out and adding to, as it were, the sum of knowledge in that sense. But you're also a very creative person, aren't you? Is there, there's room for creativity in this in this recipe for a uh, for your own good life as well? I think. I mean, you're a writer. Um, you're a wordsmith. You're, you know, you talk about poets. Some of your prose is very poetic. Um, is that is that an important thing to you? Do you think about you? I mean, it's very striking that you've spoken in terms of discovery and inquiry and always moving the human enterprise forward um, and, and finding a piece of the puzzle rather than sort of creating a, a beautiful thing. Well, there, there is this, uh, you know, um, sort of conventional distinction between uh, creatives like poets and, and painters on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, the researchers in the laboratory but I think that what is being done in the laboratory is also very creative. It requires imagination. It requires leaps from things known or understood, interpretations made to, to some possibility. And that is exactly, indeed, what a poet does. I mean, I've often thought that, that, that uh, math- mathematicians and poets have a very great deal in common in the following way, that they both have to be creative and imaginative, but they also both have to be extremely disciplined and work very hard it's a very rigorous process producing a poem. You know, you don't just dash it down on, on the page. I remember actually um, being uh, very, very uh, interested in something once told me by a musicologist who studies uh, Mozart, Mozart's manuscripts. Now, the, the six um, string quartets that Mozart wrote in dedication to Haydn, Papa Haydn, the inventor of the string quartet, were... Uh, worked over and worked over and worked over by Mozart over a, a series of years. He worked extremely hard at trying to get them exactly right because it really mattered to him that what he was going to dedicate to Haydn should be, you know, absolutely a point, you know. And this uh, uh, puts to bed the idea that Mozart dashed off another opera in the carriage between one mistress and the next, you know, that idea of overflowing genius which required no work. I mean, you think that that all creative, of course, you know, the, the creative inspiration, the idea, the germ of an idea, uh, might might be something that certain types of of people, certain types of minds, might be very fruitful in those ideas. But that but that kind of mind is is present everywhere in all human endeavour. Given, for for example, the fact that in thinking in in history or psychology or philosophy, requires uh, interpretation, requires seeing patterns that perhaps others haven't seen. That's a creative act as well. So creativity and curiosity, invention, all, all these things have connections with one another. And it may very well be that the emphasis differs between, say, on the one hand, the scientist who has a creative hypothesis and then dedicates years and years to research and test, and the poet who hears a phrase or, or sees something and then with as much rigor and as much application as, as, as a mathematician or a scientist, works out a way of expressing that. Well, we had um, Isaac Hempstead Wright on the podcast, actually, who was an actor who's now training as a scientist. And when I asked him what the two things had in common, he said creativity. Mm. Yeah. It was a very similar sort of account of it. It sounds like you also believe quite, quite uh, deeply in hard work. Are you a hard worker? You believe in the value of hard work? <laughs> Sounds well, like it. You know, you're talking about things as an enterprise, as yeah, a yeah. as a task, as a as a piece of what's got to be done. You know, 
I sometimes tell people that I've never done a day's work in my life because because it's not work; it's fun. You know, it's uh, it's what I love. So as I tell people that I leap, I, I use that that um, wonderful phrase from a Chinese poet, who said, "I leap from my bed and hasten swift as a thirsty cat to my work because I love it so." So so for me, it, it's it's never it's never felt like labor. I never felt like like effort. It's just been something always so fascinating, so gripping. Of course, there have been times, you know, committee meetings, preparing for them. So, <laughs> oh, you love a good committee meeting. I've chaired you in a committee meeting. You enjoy a good committee, I know. Uh, only when you're chairing it. Andrew. <laughs> that, that's uh, that's the differentiator there. <laughs> but no, no, so, so my, my work, uh, you know, it, uh, writing books, teaching, that kind of thing, doesn't feel like work at all. It feels like something both necessary and good. Now, imagine that combination. Powerful. Um, where do you think... This, this came from this root, the root value that you have of curiosity, finding things out, wanting to, wanting to know, and so on. You, it, you say you read the uh, one of Plutarch's essays as a boy, but um, were there formative influences on you that you can trace that put this, put this in you, this desire? I can certainly think of of one event which was a potentiator of it. Although, uh, again, I mean. I cannot remember a time, and, I, and I'm now really thinking back to the age of seven, eight or, or, or so on, where I didn't have this instinctive um, curiosity and desire to know everything. So if I read something, then I wanted to know more and more. I mean, I'll give you an example. When, we were four, when I was 14, I think, we were set our first texts for what we're now talking about, late medieval period. Okay, so this was O-level, so before GCSE. <laughs> um, I was first text for O-level English, Shakespeare texts. And I was so bowled over by As You Like It and Henry the Fourth, Part One, that in the school holiday following our being given these, these texts to read, I read everything. I read the entire works of Shakespeare. Just had to. I, just, I was so, you know, gripped by, by it that I really wanted to, get the whole context and, and to, to read more and understand more. And when, when I, I'll tell you a little um, anecdote, which is uh, the source of this passion that I've always had for uh, you know, ancient Greece, Greek and, and Greek mythology and Greek philosophy and so forth. At my, I was at a prep school, a boarding school, um, which I went to when I was about seven or, or eight. And uh, there had been some some um, thieving in the school. So the headmaster had made an announcement to the effect that uh, no boy should go into any other boy's locker in the locker room on pain of expulsion. This was a very, very serious matter. And I happened to be down at the sports fields uh, at the school when a big boy, rather brutal, big, uh, lovely sort of hobbledehoy, told me to go up to the schoolhouse and get something out of his locker for him. And I said, I can't do that. I'm sorry, you know, it's against the law here. And he said, if you don't do it, there's going to be a more, you know, strict law that's going to come crashing <laughs> down on you. So um, regarding discretion as the better part of valor and so on, I went up to the school and uh, was rummaging about in his locker when my brother, and I have a brother who's five years older than I, and he was a great man in the school. He was the prefect and the head of borders and he was captain of cricket and blah, blah. And he marched into the, Room just as I was doing this and saw me doing it, and he shouted at me. And of course, you know, in those stupid old days, we used to call one another by our surnames. You know, oh dear, railing. He shouted at me, Oh my god, I've been caught red handed. And he had under his arm uh, a parcel, and it was a present from my grandmother, and it was a book uh, for children of Greek myths. 
And he said to me, right, I'm not going to report you for doing this, but as your punishment, you have to learn by heart the first two pages of this book by tomorrow morning. And by the next morning, I could have recited him the entire <laughs> book word for word. I was just so gripped by it. And I mean, it really triggered, it really triggered everything. And, and this, see, the thing is that every spring leads to a river and the rivers lead to an ocean. You know, And for me, there's this sort of compulsion in a way to, to sail down all those rivers and to find out more and more and to take huge relish and, and delight in it. It really is, it's just something which is kind of self-feeding. The Potentiator was, was a, an event that happened uh, a little bit later. I had some sort of uh, rather difficult things happen uh, in, in my family when yes. I was about 19 or 20. Uh, I lost my sister and mother uh, at this at pretty well the same time. And uh, this was appalling thing for my father, who was devastated by it. And, you know, it was a real blow in, in our family. And because, um, uh, because of the nature of the event and... Uh, it was a, it was a, a difficult time for the, for the family. I felt afterwards that one has to, you know, uh, respond by trying to do something positive. And if something is taken away, try to put back something even more than was taken away, if, if you can. I mean, some sort of effort was doing something that might be really worth doing, intrinsically worth doing, which could be, constitute some kind of contribution in some way. And so from that uh, moment onwards, uh, I became, um, you know, to the horror of my publishers and so complete workaholic, overproductive. I knew it, you see. Yeah, yeah. Obligation to hard work. It's true, even if you don't think of it as work. No, I don't think of it as work. but, but No, but it's, it's there nonetheless, that instinct. Well, I mean, if it is, a, you know, you, you can describe it as, as uh, work. I'm perfectly happy, you know, to get all the brownie points. But the, <laughs> the point is, it's been fun, you know. It's been yeah, well, that's right. F- fun productivity. Do you have any, and how do you deal with the, a lot of what you've said is about making your contribution to um, that conversation that humanity is having with itself or the enterprise of, of pushing human knowledge forward, adding a piece, so on and so forth. How do you deal with the sad fact if it is a sad fact for you that however much that contribution is however enormous that contribution is you know eventually you are going to come to an end and that contribution that you've made to things is also going to come to an end um you know one day even if it's in the far 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 future when when you when you describe so much of what you care about and uh so much of what you're committed to as being to drive forward this human project does it how do you deal with the fact that in the end it will all come to nothing i don't know that it does come to nothing in the following sense anyway that quite a large part of what i do is to try to to clarify uh, and to um, express uh, an interpretation of, of something that would make sense that would, you know that, that others could understand or, or grasp and if i have a really really small claim to to um you know being able to do something it is to uh, explain complicated ideas in, in a fairly clear kind of way. Absolutely. And every time, every time I succeed in doing that, there will be somebody or some people who will have benefited from that, and then that will feed into whatever they do. So you know, it's as if every raindrop, so to speak, feeds into the uh, ultimate 
I'm using all these mixed metaphors. No, no, no. You're you know counting, I mean? counting up the ramifications. <laughs> They're all of value to you. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and they will go on and on because, I mean, okay, supposing somebody reads something I've written and they say, wow, okay, so now I understand that. That's interesting. And then they may put that to use and somebody else is positively affected by it in their way. And the, the baton, uh, indeed all the batons, plural, will be passed on. And so, so in, in that sense, nothing will be wasted. In just the same way as even the bad things that happen to people in their lives will not be wasted if they're prepared to make to turn them to good use, to learn from them or to apply them or to have their own sympathies extended by them or, or whatever. You know, everything will, will account as something that could be used to pass on and, and enhance value. So I'm not, you know, at all pessimistic or, or um, you know, troubled by that fact. I, I think, you know, every little bit... The jigsaw puzzle is huge, so, so one little piece of the jigsaw puzzle is not going to count for all that much in itself, but it will certainly ultimately be some constituent of, of what, what results. You've written more and more recently about politics, um, about uh, your own political ideas, your own ideas about s- constitutions and statecraft as well as about you know the immediate issues of the day do you these things are quite important to you i think i don't know if they always have been or whether you've been sort of triggered by um i was going to say recent events but it's been almost a decade now that we've lived through these current this current round of uh, difficult events um are they i mean do you is 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 political conduct political activity an important area of of interest for you it has been in the sense, uh, I mean, you're dead right that uh, just recently I've produced a little flurry of books about uh, democracy and the idea of the good state, the good society, and, and the kind of problems that the world is facing because of deficits in, in democracy. I mean, I think, for example, if you look at the fact that we've not thought at all clearly as species about the impact of this enormously rapid um, progress in technology, technologies of war and communication, social media and the rest, and we haven't really thought about how to manage them and how to respond to them properly. You see that as a result of a democratic deficit? Yes, because, um, you know, we we haven't had a discussion about it. Decisions have been made, uh, corporations have proceeded with development of technologies, the impact of which has not been thought through. The way that AI, for example, is being rolled out will have very, very many positive advantages, very positive things will happen, but there will be some negatives as well, and we haven't thought about those negatives. That, that's the problem there. But look, I've always had a, an, an interest in being engaged politically, mainly in questions of human rights and civil liberties. So, you know, from the sort of 80s, 90s, I did a lot of, of um, human rights kind of work, especially in relation to, to China, at the Human Rights Council in Geneva, did uh, uh, got involved very much in campaigns over biometric uh, identity cards in the in the noughties at the time that the ID card campaign was going on, all that sort of thing. But it's 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 basically Brexit and, and Trump, which made me think that uh, campaigns about particular issues are one thing, but having having to make the case, put the argument that the framework itself is distorted. There's a lot of dysfunction, especially in our own constitution and indeed in the u.s constitutions are thinking about um westminster model uh um, societies of which there are over 50 in the world and one of which by the way is the u.s Mm. (laughs) uh, also but there is something rotten in the very floorboards of this way of of doing politics and doing governance and so i've been very very keen to try to 
uh, elicit what it is that's the problem there and, and what should be done about it. And to generalize it from, firstly, I d- did a book about, you know, what went wrong that produced Brexit and Trump. Then I did, then that made me think, well, got to dig a bit more deeply into the question of how should it be and why should it be that mm. way? So this was the idea about, you know, what a good state would be like. Yeah. This has a connection, by the way, with this more general point, the sort of humanistic uh, Very much ethical so, yes. that I have, but, but which is that the good society, the good, well-governed, um, self-conscious uh, society as the setting in which good individual lives can be lived, is that that connection is very important. It's a connection made long ago by Aristotle, who said that ethics and politics are seamlessly one thing, because you can't have a good individual life unless you do so in a good social setting. And then it generalizes even further to the points that I was making about technology, about climate change, about um, poverty, world poverty, about injustice, economic injustice as well as social injustice in our world. And they're all connected because people, us, we, we the people, don't have enough of a voice. You know, government has become political. Government is about politics. Uh, In uh, societies like ours and the United States, for example, with very, very dysfunctional electoral systems, what we get is one-party government. We get party political government instead of government for all the people, which acts in the interests of all the people and recognizes that it is in the interests of all the people of this country that all the people of the world should be you know, working together on things like climate change and so on. So all this sounds incredibly idealistic, but there is a hard practical point mm. here, mm. which is that if the G7 governments were governments that were really, each of them, not thinking of the economic competitiveness of their own you know, uh, situation, not wanting to be left behind in an arms race on weapons or AI or technological development, not wanting to be too active about you know, dealing with climate problems because that puts them at a competitive economic disadvantage. That if the if the major uh, economies of the world were to do what thoughtful people in them, you know, and, and if everybody were well enough informed, then we would all be thoughtful about this. But what wanted to do something about our world, uh, you know, and, and putting things right, then it could happen. You know, and what's possible could be made actual. Of course, it's highly improbable that it will happen. It's unlikely, but. That's no reason for not arguing for it. Curiosity and making sense of things, being a good guest at life's dinner party, our democratic deficit, the good state, and the interconnectedness of all these things. Thank you, Anthony Grayling, for telling us what you believe. That was AC Grayling speaking for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the third episode of the fifth season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about Humanism, Humanists UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more on the Humanists UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see there, please consider joining up as a supporter or member. You can also find out more about Humanism by purchasing the Sunday Times best-selling book, The Little Book of Humanism, available in all good bookshops. 